You're listening to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard, of course, is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and he's a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. And we have a lot to talk about today because President Biden has just finished announcing a new vaccine mandate as a part of his six-part COVID-19 plan. Now, in addition to mandating that all federal workers, staffers at hospitals that accept Medicaid and Medicare funding, and public educators be vaccinated, President Biden announced a vaccine mandate for all private employees who work in businesses with at least 100 workers, or they have to show weekly negative COVID tests. It's expected to affect about 80 million workers in the private sector. Now, the rule will be enforced through OSHA in the Department of Labor. That's the uh, department that governs worker safety. And Richard, there are many vaccine mandates in place right now across the United States. Public schools have vaccine requirements. Those serving in the armed forces have to get vaccinated for a whole host of things. So how is this mandate different from existing vaccine mandates? That's actually a hard question. There's no easy answer to it. But what you have to do is to ask yourself the following kind of question. When you're talking about all these other vaccines, they seem to have had very long histories, and the viruses or the particular conditions that they're trying to deal with are relatively constant. So smallpox now, smallpox 200 years ago, are pretty much the same thing because the structure of the underlying molecules give them a high degree of stability. When you start dealing with this particular virus, uh, one of the things about it is it turns out to be something that mutates fairly frequently. And it turns out that the mutations take place, notwithstanding a relatively rigid function, because if you listen to the biological reports on that, it turns out that the change in a single active nucleotide, part of the DNA code, uh, that takes you from one nucleic acid to another, can essentially seriously change for better or for worse uh, the toxicity of the particular stuff. Uh, so the question then is, how good are the vaccines going to be in this kind of an environment? And so there are the following kinds of serious issues uh, that I think you have to do. One, all of these vaccines are relatively new, and they're using a relatively new technology, the M. Uh, RNA technology, and I do not know what the details of this are, and so I don't want to presume to deal with it. But what it is, is a different kind of technology than trying to take an attenuated version of the thing that you're stopping, the flu or the diphtheria, so forth, injecting it into people and hoping that they could then develop the antibodies so when the heavier onslaught comes, they're able to resist it. Uh, The question that you then have to ask is, given this particular technology, what do we know? And there are two serious problems that you have to face. One of these things is we've not done any longevity studies with respect to these things. We don't know whether or not uh, they are going to be effective two years out or even one year out. We don't know whether or not if they're given, uh, they're going to have adverse side effects several years out, which you cannot detect through long-term tests. So that's the first problem. And generally speaking, it's an inherent problem with all clinical tests and so forth. You have to get the product out in a timely fashion. So therefore, what you do is you tend to downplay the uh, long-term effects. In some cases, they use what are known as surrogate endpoints, things that happen fairly soon, which 
basically prefigure the fact that there's going to be something that's going to happen that's bad down the road. We would not know how to use that particular technique in this case because we haven't seen the cycle do it. So that's the first problem. The second problem is the problem of marginal benefits and marginal cost. Generally speaking, with any particular medication, if you take the first dosage and it has dealing effectively with a kind of recognized clinical tradition, it's usually going to have a pretty good pop if it has any pop at all, and then it's going to have relatively modest side effects. Uh, so going from zero to one on the plus side gets you a lot, and going on from 10 to nine on the minus side doesn't get you as much of a cost. The moment you put the second version of this particular situation in, uh, the usual anticipation is you're going to come to diminishing marginal utilities, and it's going to be increasing marginal cost. And so what's an easy decision for state number one is going to be a more difficult condition for state number two. Uh, people who ever taken the Moderna vaccine, which I took, can recognize this in a very simple way. After the first shot, you get home and you go to about your business. After the second shot, most people feel really sick. They take to their beds. They can't figure out what the lethargy is about. They miss work. That's a situation where we know that the cost of that second one, cumulative of the first, are higher. What we don't know is whether the benefits are greater. You then start looking at these studies and they start to tell you that there's an erosion rate but they don't tell you what exactly that erosion rate is. Uh, but you start to see it in many places at six, at six months. It's maybe at nine months. You don't know whether different subpopulations are going to react in a different way. And so the Biden solution says, well, now what we do is we mandate a third round of this stuff. And just as a matter of the general type situation, uh, one would expect that the benefits would continue to diminish and the cost would start to go up. And so the choice that you have here is very different from the choice that you have in going from zero one. There doesn't seem to be the slightest recognition of this when they start making these things universal. And it also leaves open the very kind of difficult question of what are you going to do if it turns out, you know, four months from now, you need to have a fourth dosage. Can you play this? game indefinitely. Uh, generally speaking, I'll just end on this for the moment, when the FDA approves something, and this has been approved, they try to get some pretty good stuff, and they've never mandated anything through an FDA approval. There's always been a second filter of physician and patient resistance, so that if the FDA is wrong on what it approves, it be corrected. Here, they're taking away that second filter. And so the danger that you have structurally is that what you're doing is you're having a very aggressive initial regime at the collective level, and you're neutralizing all of the individual responses. So let's talk about the legality of President Biden's mandate, because the initial reaction from, from many people is, is well, they want to know if this is constitutional. So what do you think about President Biden's uh, legal argument that they can do this, they can mandate this on private workers and, and businesses through the Department of Labor, through OSHA? Well, I mean, this is a constant problem that you have. Generally speaking, when you're dealing with presidential powers, there's an analysis which goes back, oddly enough, to the steel seizure cases back in the early 1950s as to whether or not President Truman could take over the mines. Here you're trying to do this. And the simplest and probably the most profound opinion was by Justice Black. And what he says, well, I looked at the statutes to see whether there's any authorization, and frankly, I don't see any there. And one of the things, if you just simply say you're going to go through the Department of Labor, 
or OSHA, the Office of Safety and Health Administration, that doesn't show you what the particular authorization is to do this. So if you think, for example, just naively as a first approximation, and I've not had a chance, obviously, to look at the statute, that this is an inspection statute, you're not talking about inspection when you're mandating that people take a certain kind of drug against their particular will. Uh, So at that particular point in time, it's not at all clear that you've got that kind of a statutory mandate unless there's fairly specific language which says that you do this. Since the entire practice is completely unprecedented, that is mandating vaccine, it'd be very difficult to say that there's any historical practice taking these statutes and construing them so that the text can be supplemented in that fashion. So then what you do is you start to say, can he do it on the basis of his executive power alone? And here, it turns out, there are basically three lines of authority that you can start to talk about. One of them, you say, is that the executive power is vested in a single president of the United States. Well, that means he has the power to execute, but under the separation of powers kind of doctrine, he can only execute a law or, in the alternative, if he has some inherent power to do this kind of thing. And here you're trying to look for inherent powers to do things with matters of health and safety, and it's extremely difficult to think that there is any such general presidential mandate. It would be very hard to call this thing an emergency, uh, the kind of thing that you'd expect with a typhoon or hurricane and so forth. It is not even a pandemic condition. It may well be an endemic commission that's going to last for a very long time. Congress certainly has a chance to intervene on this stuff. And generally speaking, I think that he would not be able to say my executive power will do it. Second head is he takes care that the law be faithfully executed. Well, it's not the law that he's talking about. It's the law that Congress passed that he or his subordinates have to follow. And what he has to do is, again, get statutory authorization to do it. And the third head that's generally used is his commander-in-chief of the military. This is a very complicated type situation. But by and large, if you go back to the earlier cases, uh, the commander-in-chief is also going to be bound by statutory limitations. He can't call up the militia unless he gets the approval of Congress, given the constitutional situation. He's certainly going to be bound by constitutional restraints on what you can do generally in government or by international treaties. Uh, So the commander-in-chief power may be he's the guy who tells the army what to do. But by and large, if you go back to these earlier cases, that may tell you what he could do with respect to the military. May. Uh, But it certainly doesn't tell you what you can do uh, with respect to all sorts of individuals in the private sector who are not part of the military, not giving supplies at all. So the first thing is you don't get the authorization. Then there's the individual rights head and so forth. Well, there are many cases which have talked about the question about whether or not the government can sort of mandate that you take a vaccine to go to certain kinds of places like a public school. And it's been held that you can do that, but it's always been held in the context of a vaccine which is well known and well understood. And it's also been developed with some degree of pain that there are a set of exceptions to this. So let me just mention one, and the question is whether you follow it. There's a large body of literature, somewhat controversial, which seems to say that natural immunities by people who have had one brand of COVID will be more effective against the next brand of COVID than a vaccine. There's another body of literature which says that it's good to have one shot and the natural immunities. So one of the things you'd want to do is to say, if somebody can show that they tied it to have very high levels of natural antibodies and so forth, does that mean that they have to take the shot if they think it's going to cause them harm? 
And I would think that it's a fairly attractive case to say, yes, you're entitled to an exception to this, but we don't know. So that's the second problem. The third problem is, is the only way in which to treat this stuff through vaccines. If you look at the official American rhetoric on this stuff coming out of the CDC and the FDA, their position is that there is no drug that they will recommend and several drugs that they will downright dump all over um, for people who have COVID but are not yet in hospital. And the two most common drugs are a combination which starts to talk about HCG, hydroxychloroquine, zinc, and erythromycin. And then there's another drug called ivermectin, which has a human version and an animal version. Both of these drugs in their human versions have been taken for hundreds and millions and even billions of times application, and neither of them has any known side effect, uh, even with respect to pregnant women in the case of HCQ. So they're very, very safe, and they'll be safe here. Will they be effective? Well, there's a huge debate over that. Uh, The defenders say yes. Other people say no. If you look at foreign studies, it turns out that there are a lot of places like India where you started to move to ivermectin, and it turns out that they seem to be able to get things under control. You look at places like Israel where they have a very rigorous quarantine and vaccine program, and it turns out that the number of cases are high. Why is that? Because it seems that there's some evidence now that somebody who has been vaccinated can still spread the drug to somebody else in roughly the same proportion as a non-vaccinated person. So now protection of others becomes a very dicey and controversial thing, and protection of self, individuals are able to do that. So the individual rights argument as the medical stuff starts to develop is going to be a much more shall we say, difficult issue for the administration to deal with. So then you get the third element, and I'll just stop at this for a second, is the procedural record. If, in fact, you want to do all of this stuff, generally speaking, the government is going to be far better off if it has developed in a fairly elaborate position paper that deals candidly with all the arguments on the other side about the frailties of vaccination, the uses of other treatment, and comes out this way. When this comes out by Biden, you don't see anything of that sort. So what you're seeing now is there's a lot of resistance to the vaccination stuff at the more modest level. And that's, you know, the kind of situation which means that unions are now suing in order to stop all of this stuff from taking place. There are large numbers of individuals who think that it's kind of inappropriate and so forth. If you were to ask me, Tom, based upon what I know and I, after consultation of a fiction, would I want to take the third vaccine shot having taken the first two? The answer would be probably not, given what I know about this at this time. I'm not a doctor, right? But, you know, I'm not completely uninformed either. And I would take further medical advance and you read all of this stuff and so as to be able to make a judgment. And Biden just takes a very naive view. He's the man who says, wear masks for 100 days and this will be over, right? Well, we know how that turned out. Because high mask use and high rates of disease are positively correlated, which suggests that the masks are there, but the disease is driven by other dynamics. If the masks are around when you have high uses, it means it's people trying to stop the stuff, but they've not been able to do so. Well, I think it will be interesting to see if um, uh, fully vaccinated uh, eventually includes having a third booster as well. I think right now it just means two shots. So we'll we'll see six, eight, nine months from now if if that goes uh, any further. Uh, Richard, you know, this is going to get challenged all over the United States. Can you walk us through what a legal challenge is going to look like? I mean, how soon might we see the Supreme Court weigh in on this? 
Well, I mean, look, on the second question, how soon does the Supreme Court weigh in on it? The answer is it really will not be able to weigh in on it until the record is being developed at the trial level and you get some kind of decision. One of the reasons why this is so difficult, and I follow this literature pretty closely, is literally every day some other blockbuster study claiming one thing or another starts to come out. And so if you're writing about this, you always have to say, I want it to be published today because it's going to be obsolete by tomorrow. And so if you're trying to figure out what the Supreme Court's supposed to do, they're fighting off a moving record. And that makes them very leery to sort of intervene. So first you've got to get this stuff done, and then you have to figure out what to do with the moving record. What will happen is there may be a direct move right to the Supreme Court instead of stopping at the intermediate courts. But that, of course, also has a sort of cost associated with it because the Supreme Court on average makes better decisions when uh, it has the benefit of watching lower courts spar over these conditions, often with dissents in individual cases and different between the cases coming out on the other side. So my guess is what they would do is they would run an expedited calendar, which is sort of what they did with the steel seizure stuff, right? You know, it's the same kind of problem. So they will hear this case and then they will allow for an appeal and they'll give people 10 days on each side to brief the thing and then they'll come down with an opinion within a month from the beginning, go up to the Supreme Court. And so they're going to try to get something out with three months. It's about as fast as it's humanly possible. Uh, But again, you have the moving target stuff. We've talked about Delta. Now somebody's talking about Mu. Do I know what Mu is? No. Does anybody else know what it is? Yes, they could identify it biologically, I think. But can they figure out what its long and short-term effects are as to whether or not other vaccines are going to be effective against it, whether natural immunities work, whether the HCQ, ivermectin situation are doing it? That takes time. So uh, the way the medicine works, it's going to be extremely difficult for the courts to to do this stuff. It's going to be in multiple districts. There'll be inconsistent opinions. And what's going to happen is it's going to be extremely difficult to start to sort your way through this. People are going to demand nationwide injunctions and other people are going to say deny and somebody else is going to say grant. There are going to be fights over what we call consolidation for multi-district litigation. You don't want all too much complication. There's going to be a question of, well, is the logic the same for Moderna as it is for Pfizer, as it is for Johnson and Johnson? They're all slightly different. So I think we have to basically gird all loins on this one. It's going to be a very tough kind of a a cell to get this thing going. And I think the one thing that we have to worry about is tell me more about the death rates than tell me about the infection rates. Uh, Because if I think there's a high rate of cure, I'm less worried about the drug. And if you start looking at some of the numbers, if you take the base of the population as a whole, it's kind of like 99 point something or other protection sort of lives. But then you have to figure out what's the probability of doing fine if you get the infection. And that's obviously going to be somewhat higher. So you can have for every point an opposition point. And given the way the press has walked about all this thing, um, I, I just don't believe that you're going to get a lot of dispassionate stuff. You're going to get people who are going to be called naysayers or, or troglodytes or Trumpers and so forth. I, you know, I agree with Joe Biden, not that he agrees with Joe Biden, that you're trying to figure out what the science is. Uh, but when people start telling me that the science is settled and you listen to people on both sides, you realize that that's an amiable exaggeration. And if you think that it's settled in favor of the safe and effective paradigm, 
that's almost surely overstated. Whether it's wrong is another battle to start to take place. But I think, in effect, Biden is going forward with much too little ammunition, trying to achieve much too much. It, what you want to do is if you get voluntary compliance and see how that works out and then move on with I think that's probably a safer path. Uh, what do I think most people will do? Strangely enough, if you are overclaiming, as I think the president is, nobody believes this stuff is safe in the sense of absolutely safe and so forth. I think you're going to actually uh, produce a backlash and make it more difficult to get it through. But I do not think that the president is one who's known for his political astuteness in dealing with anything uh, since he's been with an office. So I think, in effect, that we have to express that the political dimension is going to throw all sorts of additional confusion into the problem. So what it's going to do is it's going to keep pundits like me and you, Tom, visibly engaged with this thing for a long time to come. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, on defining ideas at hoover.org every week. If you enjoyed this conversation, please rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you tune in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.